Well, before we uh, start the service, Trent, I want you to come on up. I know you probably, th- I didn't tell you you were going to do this, but you're going to do it. <laughs> I've been uh, meeting with Trent for the last, what, probably two years or a year and a half, probably. And uh, he's heading off to college. He's going to uh, Grand Canyon University down in, in Phoenix, outside of Phoenix. So we want to be praying for him, that the Lord would just continue to uh, keep him in the hollow of his hand and give him guidance as he's on his faith journey. And so we just want to pause and just pray that the Lord would bless him. So, Trent, Father, we, we pray for Trent. Lord, thank you for just our friendship. Thank you for the time that we've been granted to spend time together. Uh, we pray for his family as well, Lord, that you'll continue to lead and guide in, the, in their lives. And, Lord, we pray for Trent that you would just open up this new, um, this new adventure, Lord, uh, going away to college. And, and I know that um, it can be intimidating, but, Father, I know that you'll provide. And, Lord, we pray for a good church down there for him. And just pray that uh, everything would go according to your plan. Pray that they'd have a safe trip down and, and be able to get him set up there. And we pray for his sister, too, who's also starting college in Southern California. And pray for her. And, um, and pray that she would have a good, good start uh, to her school year as well. And so, Father, just pray you'll continue to do the work in Trent's heart and his, in his mind as uh, I've seen you doing. And just pray you'll lead him to that point of, of uh, just completion in his faith, knowing that he has faith in Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. All right. you. We want to be continuing to pray for our, our young people. I have a grandson down at Masters University, and, and there's other people that have gone away to school, so we want to continue to lift them up in prayer. But this morning we're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, we're going through this rather slowly, <laughs> methodically you might say, but it's, it's really uh, meant to help us uh, really understand what uh, the resurrection of Christ means to us. And so we've been looking at uh, the reality of Christ's resurrection. This is this whole section of, of scripture here. But um, in particular, we've been, so far we've looked at the, the prominence of the resurrection, the proofs of the resurrection, the hope of the believer's resurrection. And now we're kind of in a section from verse 20 to 34, dealing with the results of his resurrection. What happens to us as a result of Christ being risen from the dead? And so we looked at the classification of the different kinds of resurrections. Um, The resurrection of Christ being the first resurrection, obviously. Uh, We are part of that as believers. We will be one day resurrected. And then also, thirdly, the resurrection of unbelievers. Everybody gets a resurrection. But you want to make sure you're on the right side. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you want to be on the winning side of this thing before you get to that point. Because after that, it says it's appointed on, uh, to man uh, you know, uh, to die once and then the judgment. And so uh, we want to be prepared spiritually for that day when, when our time comes. But we talked about the certainty of our resurrection in verses 20 to 23. And we looked uh, last Uh, two weeks ago, about the conquest of all of his enemies, down till verse 26, the climax of all history, verse 28. Then we came to uh, verse 29, where he talks about uh, baptism for the dead. And so last week, we spent an entire message dealing with what that verse means, because a lot of people have taken out of context. A lot of people misunderstand that. You have Mormons that say, oh, that's proxy baptism. You can get baptized for somebody else and save their soul even after they're dead. And they believe that so wholeheartedly that they basically, that's why they're so much into all the genealogies and all that stuff, because they keep track of everybody. And they tell us that Mormons have baptized um, by proxy, everybody that's ever lived in the United States to date, which is pretty amazing. Doesn't do any good. It's a waste of time, but pretty amazing. So, you know, uh, we, wanna, we wanted to understand what baptism was all about, and we spoke about that uh, last week. We talked about the conviction of baptism, uh, the meaning of baptism. It means, bap- baptize means to dip or to submerge, and uh, we talked about how it implies that salvation has occurred. You don't get baptized to be saved. You get baptized because you are saved. All right? Uh, We are baptized when we, spiritually, when we come to Christ. When we put our faith, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. But then secondly, there's what we call believer's baptism. 
And that's for those who have put their faith in trust in Christ. They've come to understand their need of a Savior. And the burden of sin that they carry is burdened them down too much. And so they turn to Christ and they, they give their heart, their life to him. And they thank you for uh, his payment for their sin. And they put their, their faith solely in that, in Christ alone, by faith alone. Um, by grace alone. And so it's, it's important that we understand that it implies salvation has occurred. And it also, when we baptize somebody, we'll be doing this in the coming weeks uh, when I get back, but when, when we baptize folks, we, we bury them in the water, we lay them down, and then hopefully we bring them back up. <laughs> okay, that's the whole point. Uh, we, don't, we don't hold them under. <laughs> They'll go right to be with the Lord if that's the case. But uh, on the other hand, you know, we bring them up, and that illustrates what? Christ's resurrection when they're, when they're raised in newness of life. It's just a symbol. It's a picture. It's kind of like communion. It's a picture of God's sacrifice. All right? And so we looked at that, the meaning of baptism. We looked at the motive for being baptized, and we talked about this baptism for the dead, and, and we realized that it probably means, uh, uh, rather than the baptism for the dead, it's baptism on behalf of the dead. And we went through this, and you can get the, the message online or through the church app, but the people who are called the dead here are believers. All right, those who were baptized here on behalf of the dead, the ones who he's speaking of as dead are are people who have been baptized and died. And so there's a lot of people who have been baptized, who came to faith in Christ and have been baptized and now they're dead. And what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to pull out a, a point here that says, you know what, even those who have gone on before us and have been baptized in Christ and now they're dead, if Christ hasn't risen, then nothing after that is going to happen. So why would you even care about those people? You know, uh, and a lot of times their testimonies go before us and we can learn from them, those Christians who have lived and died. And so, and Paul is basically making the, the assumption here that, look, if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then even Christ hasn't been risen from the dead. And so it doesn't matter whether these people had faith in Christ if there's no resurrection because there's no such thing as faith in Christ because Christ is just another individual. It doesn't, he doesn't, he's not anybody special if, in fact, he hadn't risen from the dead. And so that's why Paul is making such a point here. He's making such a dramatic uh, statement when he comes to this, this verse. But let's stand in honor of God's word as we read our text for this morning, verses, I'll read 29 again, but 29 to 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 34, as we stand in honor of God's word. Paul writes, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beasts with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us drink, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Father, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearts as we study it together this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Whoops. Just made a mess there, Kenny. (laughs) It's water. It's water. So what is he saying? He's saying, you know what? At some point, what he's saying here is that people who were baptized... Um, and, and went on to die, uh, you, you know, it doesn't make any difference if there's no resurrection at all. And so we, we looked at this meaning of, of baptism, the conviction of baptism. But today we want to look at the courage needed, the courage needed in the face of danger. And he, he, he picks this right up in verse 30. Uh, notice how he continues these thoughts from, from verse 29 right into verse 30 and 32. And he's really talking here about the need um, for courage in the face of danger in your life. 
how do you explain this? I mean, when you stop and you think about, for a moment, just think about with me the apostles, those who were with Christ. What did they all do the night that he was crucified? They ran away. They hid. They were scared to death that they were going to be next. And so they ran. The Bible says that all forsook him and fled. They were scared to death. Here was their only hope, and now he's dead, hanging on a cross. How do you explain, 50 days later, roughly about a month and a half, how can you explain that these same guys who are cowering in fear on the night of Christ's crucifixion, they all ran away from him at the time of his death. How do you explain now, 50 days later, they are passionate, on fire evangelists willing, willing to die for the cause of Christ? How do you explain that? How do you explain that these apostles who were beaten to the point of almost being dead, how do you explain with backs being beaten, bruised, bloodied, some of them almost to the point of dying, they help each other walk back up to the Temple Mount and say, you know what, we got to keep preaching. <laughs> I don't care what, you can kill us, go ahead and kill us. How do you explain that? They were threatened. And they were told, if you do this again, if you go out and you preach in Christ's name again, we will kill you. Um, it seems they lost all fear. They lost all fear. And you've and you got to ask yourself the question, why? What caused this change in them? I mean, these were followers of Christ. One moment, they're cowering, they're denying, they even know Christ to people. And now they're passionate, on-fire evangelists, willing to die, willing to lay their life down for the cause of Christ. The only explanation for the, for the, the change in the conduct of these apostles, the life and, and the courage that they had, the only explanation is that they had seen who? The risen Christ. They had seen the risen Christ. That's the key. That's why they were apostles. That was one of the, the mandates you had to have to be an apostle. You had to see the risen Christ. That's why Paul, an apostle, he says, I was an apostle born out of due time. In other words, I wasn't with the other guys. I was killing Christians at that point. <laughs> but when he came to know the Lord on the road to Damascus, guess what he, who he saw? He saw the risen Lord. Christ made a special trip back to heaven, from heaven, for him. And so he was deemed as an apostle just like the other ones. And sometimes you talk to Christians and you get in a discussion about the resurrection of Christ and, and some people say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that important. You know, it's, you know after all, you know, the Bible does say that he comes alive in our hearts. Isn't that true? Yeah, it's true. But I'll tell you what. Um, you know, I appreciate the fact that he lives in our hearts. Thank him for that every day. But if he did not rise physically from the dead, if the Lord Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, you and I are as lost as we've ever been. We're still steeped in our sins. We have no forgiveness. We have no grace. And we're headed for hell, not heaven. So you better get the resurrection of Christ right. It's not something you can shove off to the side and say, well, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. Because if he didn't rise physically, then he wasn't God. And if he wasn't God, who is he? You know, you can go down to Mexico and, and find a lot of people named Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> it, it doesn't make him deity. See, the Lord Jesus Christ was deity. He was God in a bod. <laughs> he came from earth and he took on a physical body. And then that, in that physical body, he lived 30-some years, a perfect life, never sinned once. 
And then he went to the cross willingly. And he gave his life for you and for me and for the sins of all those who would ever put their faith or trust in Christ. And so it's, it's very crucial to the whole argument. And so the courage needed in the face of danger. And we read about this in verse 30. Look at what he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, um, he says, why are we in danger every He says, why are we in danger every hour? Every hour. I mean, that is incredible. Uh, You see the results of the resurrection not only in the conviction about baptism, but you see it as they affect our courage when we need it in the face of danger. And there's three things here I want to share with you. First of all, it was a constant danger. Look at verse 30. That's what he says. In every hour. Every hour, Paul said. Um, You know, I mean, praise God we live in the country we live in, right? Where we have the freedom to gather. Where we have the freedom to pray when we want to pray. When we have the the freedom to have church when we want to have church. Now they're trying to, (laughs) they they attempted to change that. But luckily, um, or by the Lord's providence, I should say, um, we stood our ground, right? It's a right for Christians to gather together. It's, it's, it's a fundamental right in our country that we get to worship how we want to worship. And that's a wonderful blessing to grow and to be born in America and grow up in, in the freedoms of our country. But we don't understand this verse the way some people do. Trust me. We don't understand it. We can't. See, there's an intellectual acceptance of the fact that, you know what, maybe we could be put in some kind of danger by following Christ, by believing in the Lord. But it's only ex- experiential. That only comes home to roost when you really live in a culture where that is actually true. You think of these believers in Afghanistan. There's Christians over there. And our government's turning their, their back on them. There's been people trying to get Christians out of Afghanistan, and they're saying no. Won't allow the flights to happen. It's tragic, because those people will die at the hands of the Taliban if they don't comply. That's the bottom line. And, you know, we, we can't understand that. We, we cannot even comprehend people who would cut off the heads of those who are not part of their religion. But that's exactly what they've done. They've done it for many, many years. And to think that our country is engaging in talks with these people is just atrocious. They're terrorists. See, if you're a Christian in Afghanistan today, you understand what it means to be in constant danger. I mean, probably over half of the world experienced that. Definitely over half of the Christian world experienced that kind of danger each and every day. They live in countries, they live in cultures where they don't have the freedoms that we have right now. They don't have any of it. And they can stand with Paul when he says this verse, that I'm in danger every day. They say, boy, we totally understand what he's saying. And what is Paul saying here? He's saying, you know what? If there is no resurrection, why would I put myself in such danger? Why would I put myself in such jeopardy all the time if there is no resurrection? If there is nothing to look forward to? Turn over to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to show you what Paul was facing all the time because it puts it in perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We do not understand, folks, what it means to suffer for Christ. We do not. We have no idea. There are Millions and millions and millions of Christians 
who have been slaughtered for no reason whatsoever other than they were a Christian. In Muslim countries, killing Christians is considered a wonderful thing. It's almost sport. And in Muslim countries, killing a Jew, you really get blessed by that. You get to go to heaven and have 70 wives. And they think that's a real blessing. I, I, I don't know if I, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I mean, I got one wife. That's enough for me. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I couldn't deal with 70 wives. Are you kidding me? But anyway, that's what they teach. But it's unbelievable how we in America can sit here and talk about this and we don't have really the, the slightest idea, the foggiest idea about really what's going on in the world today. We're so protected. And trust me, I thank God for that protection every day. I thank God for the freedoms that we have here. It's a wonderful country, even with all the issues and problems that we're facing. It's, it's the best place in the world to live, as far as I'm concerned. Because we have freedom. We have freedom to worship. We have freedom to say what we want to say, at least for the moment. Maybe a day will come when we won't. But look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 30. 23 to 30. He says, are they servants of Christ? Am I am a, a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. I mean, he was imprisoned so much. I mean, I, you know, a lot of times when you go to a new place, you go to a new town, you know, oh, and if you're on vacation, what, what's the hotel we're going to be staying at? Well, Paul didn't care about the hotels. He cared about the jails. <laughs> you know, if I'm going to go there, what kind of jail do they have? Because he knew that's where he was going to end up. They left him for dead. In Lystra, they stoned him because of his commitment to Christ. Some believe, some commentators actually believe that he died there and he was resurrected. Pretty crazy, but I don't know. Interesting point. He goes, continues here in verse 24, 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 39 lashes. Why? Because 40 would probably kill you. So they would give you 39. 25, three times I was beaten with rods. You see this on, on video when you're watching what's going on over there in Afghanistan now. People lining up to get the, the airport. You see the Taliban beating them with these, these rods. That's it, it, not a little, a little thing. That's a, that hurts. He says, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I was adrift at sea. Amazing. Verse 26, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold, and exposure. And apart from other things, apart from all that, Paul says, there's the daily pressure on me on, of my anxiety for the churches, for all the churches. Verse 29, who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. He says in verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And you have to ask yourself, if there's no resurrection, Paul, why would you go through all this? Why would anybody suffer for the cause of Christ? Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. You see it, that it was a constant danger, constant but it was also a willing decision in verse 31. Look at what he says. I die every day. I die every day. This is what Paul said. You know, you and I have to make this same decision. 
spiritually in our lives. We're called to die to ourselves each and every day. Now, of course, he didn't mean physically die. He wasn't talking in that sense. But he's talking about the pressures, the, the dangers of persecutions, his own desires. He said, no, I, I can't. I got to die to those. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about what Christ wants for me. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And you see this dying every day scenario here. Romans 8 verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes through this list of things. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or dangers or sword? As it is written, look at what he says, verse 36. For your sake... We are being killed all day long. All day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Is that going to separate us? No. Look at what it says. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Why? Well, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor... Rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the trouble Paul faced was every day. He didn't have good days and bad days. Every day his life held in the balance. It was like death all over each day. Am I going to die today? Am I going to die today? We don't understand that. I guarantee you the people in Afghanistan today understand that. Am I going to make it to the airport? Or am I going to be shot? Am I going to be beheaded in the street? Am I going to be killed in front of my children? I mean, these are real life situations that these people are dealing with. We can't even relate to that. But we can relate to the idea of dying to ourselves each and every day. Death to my plans. Death to, death to my desires. Death to what maybe I want to do. This is what Paul had to struggle with. He wants people to know, I suffered what I suffered. Why? Just so I could get my own way? No. He did it for the cause of Christ. That's an incredible statement. In English, we would say, you know what? I face death every day. It's with us every day. I mean, if, if we were in this situation right now, if we were experiencing it right now, we would take this passage completely different. If we were meeting here and the government told us we can't meet, and we were meeting here in secrecy, and at any moment, someone could break through the back doors and come in and arrest us and possibly kill us because we're Christians meeting. We would take this verse completely different. We would take this message completely different. We would take the passage of scriptures completely different. And I'm sad to say that some people here, even in this room, probably would be unwilling to make that decision to die daily. They would be unwilling. They would say, I'm not sticking around here. I mean, you, you guys got a death sentence hanging over your head. I'm going to go find some new friends. But see, if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. If, if the truth of the resurrection is true, then what does the Bible say? Then you don't have to fear him who kills your body. Who cares? You fear him who can cast your body and soul where? Into hell. That's who you fear. I mean, why would I fear anybody if they came up and shoved a gun in my head? I, I, I completely understand. That's a very intimidating situation to be in. I don't want to be in that situation. I pray that God would give me the grace to say, yeah, go ahead. Absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. At least it'll be quick. It'll be over. I'll be in God's presence. Why? Because there is resurrection. Because Christ did raise from the dead. 
We have to put things in perspective. There's so many people today that are cowering in fear over a silly virus. And I get it. It's serious. People have died as a result of this virus. It's not a joke. But at the same time, you know what? We all have an appointment with death. If I'm going to die from a virus or die from getting hit by a bus or die from a plane crash, I'm going to die. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die. We have an appointment with death. Nothing you do, no matter how many times you go to the gym, no matter how many supplements you take, no matter what you do with your body, is going to change the fact that one day you will be cold, laying in a casket or whatever, dead, not breathing, no brain activity. The heart won't be pumping any more blood. We all have that appointment. And you have people cowering in fear. Believers cowering in fear. Because someone gives you information that causes you to be fearful. Like I said, we don't want to be stupid. I don't don't want to catch a virus. I don't want to catch a cold for that matter. I don't like being sick. But you know what? My life's in God's hands, period. See, it was a constant danger. It was also a willing decision. But then thirdly here, verse 32, it was an obvious disadvantage if there's no resurrection. Clearly, clearly a disadvantage. And he gives an interesting illustration here in verse 32. Look at what he says. He says, what do I gain if humanly speaking... I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised. He says they're humanly speaking. The NIV says for human reasons, merely human reasons. The New American Standard says for human motivations. I mean, what human motivations could Paul have had for continually risking his safety and his life? I mean, that would be a madman. When you read the commentaries on this, it's interesting because a lot of people have different takes on this where he says, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. We can't be certain here that Paul fought with literal wild beasts at Ephesus. But it seems entirely possible in my mind. Some people believe that he did not. They say, well, you know... um, he was a Roman citizen, and it was the Romans who fed Christians to the lions, so they couldn't have done that. But you know what? I mean, the, the Romans, I don't think they abided by every little rule, clearly, right? It's like saying, oh, we're going to trust the Taliban for the protection of our <laughs> Who in the right mind? But anyway, don't get me started. And so it's interesting here that First of all, you have to understand that Christians were regularly fed to wild beasts for sport in the Colosseums of Rome. Oh, you're a Christian? Okay, we're going to have you go dance with a lion. Let's see who wins. And they would be torn apart and people would cheer. People would love it. It's sport. What's interesting is when you read through Philippians chapter 4, it talks about, now this is when Paul was in, in prison, right? He was in the praetorium guardhouse there, and he says this. He says, all the saints of believers greet you. And you wonder, well, who's he talking about? And then he says, chiefly they are of Caesar's family. So this is people who were... Predominantly not Christian, but apparently, somehow, they heard the gospel and responded. Um, it was Nero, who was the Caesar at the time. Paul was in prison at the time. And what this guy did was he was in the process of murdering his wife, his, his mother's uh, mother-in-law, several relatives. Why? Because of their faith in Christ. He had them murdered. Didn't agree with it. 
And Paul says, hey, they all greet you chiefly later, he says, in Nero's own family. Well, how did he get the gospel to him? I think Paul, when he was in prison, he wasn't in there cowering in the corner. Woe is me, I'm in prison, oh, poor me. No. What was he doing? He was fighting. Spiritually, he was fighting. I mean, can't you imagine? I mean, usually what would happen when they would put them in jail is your non-writing hand, okay, if you're, if you're right-handed, then it would be your left hand, your non-writing hand would be um, chained to a soldier's hand. And he had to stand there, even though you were in the bars, he had to stand there with you for a watch, which was generally about four hours. And he was instructed not to talk to you, not to say anything, just stand there and guard you. So nothing happened to you. And pretty much the place that Paul was being held was a place for those who were going to be executed. So that's why they had such a high security level. And so think about it. Here are these Roman guards chained to this little balding Jewish man who basically was passionate for Christ. Who never met another human that he wouldn't share Christ with. I mean, you can imagine Paul there in prison chained to these, these soldiers and him looking at them going, wow, that's a pretty cool helmet you got there. Man, I love that big red sash you're wearing. That, that reminds me of the blood of Christ. And the soldier's just staring at him. Matter of fact, I'm going to write that down here. The helmet of salvation. Boy, you got that breastplate. Man, you must shine that thing forever. Look at how shiny it is. How long did it take you to get that, that way? Oh, I forgot. You're not allowed to answer any of my questions. You're not allowed to talk to me. Well, I'll just continue. I mean, can you imagine? These guys are probably like, shut up already. I would have loved to have been in their locker room. You know, the guards, when they, when they go back to their locker room, you know, oh, who are you with? Oh, that little Jewish guy down there. That guy won't shut up. You know, he keeps talking about Christ. Driving me nuts. Well, I think what he was doing is he was slowly introducing the gospel. And apparently some of them, some of them came to Christ. And people came to know the Lord in even Caesar's family as a result of Paul being in prison. It's remarkable how God can use us in difficult times. In difficult times. God can use it. His people if they're willing to be used. I mean, that's why he described the Christian armor in Ephesians 6. As he wrote that book when he was there in the guardhouse. I mean, he, it just kind of makes sense. Now, you ask yourself the question, did he really get fed to the beasts? <laughs> did they really feed him to the lions? We don't know that for certain. But I'll tell you what, if you turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is interesting. He was in a, the, the Mamertine prison there, and it's a dungeon for those who are going to be executed. And in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, in his greetings at the end, there's an interesting verse here in verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Can you imagine being in prison for the cause of Christ and not one other believer even reaches out to try to help you or, or whatever? We've probably been in those situations in our Christian life at some point. He says, may it not be charged against them. He's not holding it against them. It's like, okay. Look at what verse 17 says, though. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Interesting. Was he really fed to beasts and hepsis? We don't know, but it could have been. You know, some people say, well, that means, you know, he's referring to, to Satan there. But it's interesting because Paul never refers to Satan that way. He always refers to Satan as Satan or the evil one. Um. Why would he not do it here if he was referring to Satan? Why would he 
confuse us with that. So it, it could be possible that he was fed to the lions. You say, well, what, what happened? I mean, these are, these are hungry lions who tore Christians to, to, into little bitty pieces in, in, in front of a applauding crowd that was shouting, eh, throw another one in. You know, it's just, it's just crazy. You can't even imagine the sickness of it. But you know what? I remember in the Old Testament, God stopped the mouths of the lions back in the book of Daniel, did he not? Why couldn't he do it for Paul? May have. You don't know. You don't know. Um, but why would he put himself in this predicament? Why would Paul, if there's no resurrection, why would he change his life from murdering Christians, having them arrested, to all of a sudden now he is a Christian, and he's living day to day with a, a death warrant over his head, and yet he's rejoicing in the Lord. Why would he put himself in these situations? Why would he do that if there is no resurrection from the dead? And that's really what, what he said when he was writing Second, Second Timothy verses 6 to 8. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, Paul said. And my t- the time of my departure has come. He knew he was going to die for Christ. Verse 7, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, he says, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Why would he even say something like that if the resurrection wasn't true? See, that's a man who believes that he is going to be resurrected from the dead. And guess what? He's not, gonna, he's not afraid of death anymore. He's not afraid to die. Well, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's another matter here. We have the conviction about baptism, the courage needed in the face of danger. But then also in verse 32, I'll say this, the control of physical appetites. You say, what's that mean? Well, look at what this says. It says, if the dead are not raised, what? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. (laughs) Let us eat and drink. That's quoted from Isaiah chapter 22, verses 12 to 14. See, a lot of times, if you look at history, the Epicureans who were in the Greek philosophy, they taught this. That, hey, just do whatever you can now, because tomorrow you might die, and there's nothing after that. Don't worry about it. But here we see this, this verse being quoted out of Isaiah, and it, it's really um, dealing with, with Israel and, and dealing with their mentality. It says in verse 12 of Isaiah 22, In that day the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us drink, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Um, What's it talking about there? It's talking about Israel in rebellion to God. They're saying, we don't care what you say, God. We're going to do what we want to do. And what Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, then we might as well just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Who cares? There's no judgment. Just do whatever you want. If there's no judgment, there's really no God. There's no truth here in the Bible that's real. Just do whatever you want. Why would you even come to church? You've got better things to do. Live it up. But we understand that, because we believe in the resurrection, that it makes a difference. It makes a difference. First John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, John writes this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not, what? Know him. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, listen to this, what we will be, has not yet appeared. 
In other words, this is what we're going to talk about next week. Our resurrected bodies. What, what, what's it going to be like in eternity? Are we going to be completely, totally different people? No. I, I believe we're still going to have the same personality. We're going to still be Ken and Steve and, and Beacon and whoever else. You're, you're going to have that about you because that's how God created you. But you're going to have a glorified body. Perfect in every way. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. See, and he wants us to know that, hey, that hasn't appeared yet. That's not even on the the horizon yet. That only happens when when you leave this life. But he says, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him. When will he appear? When he comes back for his church, right? He will appear in the clouds. And we've talked about this. The Bible says we call it the rapture. And he will call all those who know Christ to be with him. And immediately, we will have an uh, eternal state. Of, of a, 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 we'll be in his presence. We will be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, if you lose hope for the future resurrection, what do you do? You live like there's nothing there. You don't care. I mean, if you've ever talked to or seen an interview with someone who is just a psychopath. You know, there's some people that have just done some horrible crimes. Horrible. I mean, you can't even talk about it. It's disgusting. And during the interview, they, they just talk like it's not a big deal. What is wrong with these people? You know, they, they, have, they have no knowledge of God. They have no hope of any future whatsoever. So they, they just go out and live their life. Go live it up. Do whatever you want. You want to... Kill, rape, pillage, destroy, whatever, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why even care about it? Well, the reason we care about it is because there is a resurrection. Is there not? See, there is accountability to God. One day there will be accountability. There is the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is real. It's not a fairy tale that somebody made up for Sunday school. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. The resurrection of the dead is going to occur in everyone, whether they are believers or unbelievers, will be resurrected. That's what the Bible says. Everyone will give an account of himself to God, bar none. The Bible teaches that. But I'll tell you what, there's going to be a tremendous difference between the believer in Christ and the unbeliever in Christ at resurrection time. The unbeliever will be resurrected to stand before the great white throne judgment and the sentence will be given. Whoever is not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Unbelievable judgment. Unbelievable judgment. But all people will be resurrected. Some to judgment, some to everlasting life. Some to everlasting condemnation, some to everlasting bliss in heaven with their Lord and Savior. Some to a place where there's, the Bible says, weeping and and wailing and gnashing of teeth. For all eternity. Not for a day, not for a week, not for a month. Not for a year, not for 10,000 years. Not for 100,000 years, for all eternity. You reject Christ. You turn your back from Christ and his gift of salvation. Trust me. You will not be in a happy place. The Bible describes it as a place where the worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. Don't believe the lie that, well, you just die and, you know, that's it. You go back to dust. There's nothing beyond the grave. Oh, yes, there is. But you want to be on the right side of it. If you're on the wrong side of it, you're going to be in a place of hellfire and brimstone. And guess what? It's not like you're going to burn up. You're never going to burn up. 
tormented forever and ever and ever for all eternity. That's the description of hell. That's, that comes out of the Bible. That's, I'm not making anything up here. And it brings us to the final point here, the results of the, the resurrection, verses 33 and 34, the change in our conduct. A change in our conduct. Look at what verse 33 says. He says, do not be deceived. In other words, don't believe this lie that there is no hope for the future. Don't believe the lie that there is no resurrection. The resurrection caused change in the apostles' conduct, that's for sure. It was like night and day. They were scared disciples, and all of a sudden they became these passionate, on-fire evangelists. Well, what happened? It was Christ. The risen Christ. So he says, don't be deceived. It's the first thing here. Stop being deceived. It has the indication that we are being deceived every day. Bad company ruins good morals. New American Standard says bad company. Uh, NIV says character, bad character, uh, morals. You know, that's what it has to deal with. And it means that you need to stop this. Stop being deceived. You are being deceived. Stop it. It's, we, it, it has the indication we have a constant tendency to be deceived. What are we deceived about? Well, a host of things, but one of them is bad company. Bad company. The Greek word here refers to discourse as well as practice. It talks about social life. It says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Evil social life, wicked social life, what does it do? It corrupts good morals. That word morals, ethos. It has the idea of ethics or values. I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you have kind of a token commitment to Christ. You're hanging on by the, the skin of your teeth, so to speak. Your, your commitment to Christ is barely there. And so you end up, what do you do? You hang around unbelievers when you're not around Christians. See, there's, there's a, a lot of unbelievers, beloved, that are wonderful people. They're wonderful people. But let's be clear. If you do not know the Lord, you're going to hell, period. And our association with such people is not to be so restrictive that we don't hang around unbelievers. I'm not saying that. Because the Bible says that we're to be the salt and the light, right? But we have to understand that we cannot have fellowship with them. We cannot have fellowship with them. The Bible says our great goal is to see them to what? Come to know Christ. To have them won over for Christ. That's the only reason we associate with them. But he says here, this evil social life will corrupt good values and good ethics. So don't be deceived. It's interesting. How many people do you know who call themselves Christians who are absolutely deceived in this area? So-called Christians who have a, what we would call an evil social life. You know, they, they come to church and they, as soon as they leave the door, so to speak, they're, they're out there living like the devil. They shine on Sunday, and then they live like the devil the rest of the week. I mean, how many people do you know like that? Merely professing Christ, but there's no change in their conduct. I always told young people when I was a youth pastor, when we'd go to camp, and they'd come back, and they'd say they threw a stick in the fire, and now they're a Christian, whatever. And I'd say, well, we'll see. And they'd say, what do you mean? I'd say, no change, no no. No Jesus, no change. No change, no Jesus. So come back and, you know, talk to me about your spiritual life in three weeks, and we'll see where you're at. And either it sticks or it doesn't. But he says, stop being deceived. And then he says here in verse 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right. Wake up. 
what could we say here? Stop, stop being deceived, but also stop going to sleep spiritually. Stop going to sleep spiritually. Awake in righteousness, the King James, New King James says. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. The ESV says, wake from your drunken stupor. That is right. Uh, other versions say, come to your senses and stop sinning. Be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. The second one is, stop going to sleep spiritually. Awake to righteousness. What is that? It's a godly lifestyle. A godly lifestyle. Why? Because Jesus arose from the dead. That's why. And one day, you will have to give an account one day. We'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to see what we've done, either good or bad, it says. And we're all going to stand before the Lord. According to the Bible, we need to awake. We need to stop falling asleep spiritually. We act like it's no big deal, whatever we do. Well, our sins are forgiven, so, you know, we can go out and do whatever we want. No, we can't. That's presuming on God's grace. You're deceived. You're, you're, you're falling asleep. And Paul is saying, stop it. Stop it right now. And he's assuming here that it's our, our natural tendency to do this. He's assuming that it's a habit that we do this, that we fall asleep spiritually. We could hear the word of God and be involved in worship and act like we're on this big hot streak for the Lord and boy, we're just so righteous and, and all of a sudden we find ourselves back in the world again and we're doing something that's totally dishonoring to the Lord. And there are people today in the church that think somehow they can have one foot in Christ and one fit foot in the world. That's impossible. You cannot live that way and live a life that's honoring to God. It won't work. You can't compromise that way in your spiritual life. And Jesus was pretty upfront about it. I mean, he, he, he told his followers, you're going to have to die daily. You're going to have to take up your cross and instrument of death and follow me. He even went as far as to say, you know what? If your love for your parents isn't like hatred in comparison to your love for me, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. He wasn't telling you to hate his parents, your parents. He wasn't telling you to hate your siblings. But what he was saying was, if your family means so much to you, and I don't mean so much more than that, forget it. Don't follow me. There is a resurrection coming, and we will stand before the Lord, and we will give an account for everything that we have done. Thank God, as believers, it will not result in our being lost. No one can snatch us out of his hand. I like what David Hawking says. You may, you may be able to jump from knuckle to knuckle in God's hand, but you're not jumping out. I mean, in his hands, he holds the world. But there will be, for those believers who choose to go down that road, a loss of reward. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else built upon it, Paul says. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So he gave us a foundation. Be careful what you do from then on. That's on you. Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Payday someday. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We have to be reminded that God wants us to have a passion in our heart. He wants us to understand where we're at and why we're here in this world. It's not just to come to church on Sunday in our Sunday best and listen to somebody pontificate about spiritual things and then leave and it doesn't even connect to the rest of our lives. I like, if you have the opportunity this next week, listen to this song by Keith Green, Asleep in the Night. Here's what he writes. 
It's called Asleep in the Night. He says, do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and you pretend the job is done. Oh, bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. You know it's all I ever hear. No one aches. No one hurts. No one even sheds one tear. But he, he cries. He weeps. He, he bleeds. And he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Can't you see it's such sin? Because he brings people to your door and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace. And all heaven just weeps because Jesus came to your door and you left him out in the streets. Open up, open up and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries, so how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one. But like Jonah, you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Can't you see it's such sin? The world is sleeping in the dark, and the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave, and you... You can't even get out of bed. I pray that our hearts are clear. That we don't take for granted what God has done for us, what God has provided for us. He says, you know what? Don't fall asleep spiritually. And lastly, he says, sin not. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Some of you here this morning are actively pursuing sin. You need to stop it. You need to confess it to God and you need to say, that's it, I'm done. We're always surprised when someone falls from grace. Another pastor this past week fell in morality. How did that happen? It's simple. It's simple. The Bible tells me the Holy Spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. That's what it says. They're contrary to one another. This is the state in which we live. So we can't just do the things we want to do. If if you're sitting here this morning and you're comfortable in your Christianity just continuing on in sin, act of sin, without any desire to repent or to get it straightened out, you feel no grief over your sin whatsoever. There's no mourning, there's no sorrow, there's no pain, nothing. Guess what? I'm sorry, but you're not a believer. You may be a religious person. You may even be a church member. But you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's for sure. And your sins have not been forgiven you. You need to repent. You need to turn to Christ. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked, the Bible says. Whatever a man sows, so that he shall reap. Evil social life will corrupt good ethics and values. You're not removed from that. Don't be asleep spiritually. Awake to righteousness. Live a godly lifestyle. And by all means, stop stop sinning. It's because they had a problem with being ignorant of God and his word. If we knew God and we drew close close to God we would know that we have to stop this kind of behavior. And Paul says, I speak this to your shame, Corinthians. I speak this to your shame. I mean, the Corinthian church was far from perfect. They had all kinds of problems. I mean, they had incest going on. They had drunken parties going on over the communion table. I mean, it was completely disgusting. There was terrible, terrible problems in this church. And Paul is saying, I speak this to your shame. You know what I'm talking about. 
Well, the good news is, the good news is the next time we're together, (laughs) we're going to learn about the new body we're going to get. And uh, if you're a believer, that is. And we're going to talk about whether you're going to be the same person or not and, and how God is going to bless us with that. And the good news is that, you know what, if we're a believer in Christ, you're going to be a lot better now than you, or you're going to be a lot better then than you are now. You'll be a lot better. And so we, we don't need to, to be fretful. We don't need to be worried because we know that there is a resurrection and it is coming. And we will be changed, twinkling, just in a moment, second, when he returns for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and his willingness to share these words with the Corinthian church and and with us through your word. And Father, we pray that if there's any here this morning who feels the burden of their sin, who feels the weight of their sin crushing down upon them, Lord, that they would... Understand what it means to turn to Christ, to look to Christ, look to Jesus. The one who can forgive, the one who has paid the price for us. You profess your faith in Christ and in Christ alone. He will save you, the Bible says. If you believe that he lived and died and rose on the third day, he will save you, he will change you. It's happened for many in this room, and it could happen for you even today. You just cry out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I acknowledge my sin before a holy God. I need help here. Things are coming unraveled in this world, and I'm a little worried. Cast your cares upon him, he says. He will care for you. God is real. He's not a fairy tale. And the resurrection is is very real. And one day we will participate in it, all of us, whether we're believers or not. But if our faith is in Christ, we will be on the right side of of that in the future. And so we pray that you will equip us to do the work that you've left us here to do. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.